0: that. Let's pray. Um, God, I'm asking that for every man here, including myself, that today would be yet another opportunity for us to cut away the lies and the the misconceptions we have about manhood, and for you to replace those with your truth. I just ask that that happens for me and every man in here, and that it frees us up to be the aggressive men that you're calling us to be. And I pray that when that happens, we look like Jesus. Amen. All right, so um, we're going to do something today. That's kind of a little bit different than the typical way we teach here at Crossroads. Oftentimes we teach, it's very topical, and we kind of have some points and we walk through those points. And um, today what I want to do is actually walk through the story of the Bible, We're going to compare two examples of manhood today, and I would submit to you that this story of manhood actually plays out in the bigger narrative that the Bible is telling. So we're going to compare a man named Adam, who's called the first created man, according to the Bible. We're going to take a look at him and what we can see about his manhood, and then we're going to compare Adam to Jesus, because one of the examples that Jesus is is not just how to live in relationship with God, but I do believe Jesus is an example of manhood to follow. And so we're going to take a look at those two stories, walk through a couple of Bible verses, and just kind of pull out some insights as we go along. And the reason that I'm really passionate to do this today is because I think there's an epidemic in men in our culture that really doesn't get talked about a lot. And this is what I think it is. Quite frankly, I think that there is an epidemic of passivity among men in our culture. I think men are are generally in our culture passive or at worst, they're aggressive about the wrong things. I think part of the reason for this is because even in boys, aggression is seen as something to be stamped out or eliminated. This is what a childhood psychologist said about boys and aggression. He says, calling boys aggressive is an attempt to punitively try and control behavior we are not comfortable with. But the problem isn't that boys have these impulses and interests. The problem is that we overreact. And I really believe this happens in our culture. I think part of the reason for the overreaction is because male aggression has been kind of just pocketed away as violence, gratuitous violence. And we say, yeah, that's what it means to be an aggressive male, gratuitous violence. And in a, in a, a healthy desire to want to course correct from that, I want to submit we've gone too far. We've gone too far, and as a result, we have stamped out the God-given warrior mindset that exists in every man, it exists in every boy, and we have created a culture of passivity among men in our culture. And that is a problem. That is not the way it's supposed to be. And this shows up in a variety of different ways. In the micro, it shows up with men who are passive when it comes to honoring marriage or when they're passive about honoring women. In the micro, it shows up in fathers who aren't fathering their children, whether they're in the house or not. That's passivity. And it is a cultural problem, a cultural dynamic that we deal with on the macro level. There's also passivity that we see. There's passivity in people in leadership who aren't doing and making hard calls. That, and because they don't make hard calls, there are people who get hurt. There are people who get damaged. There are people who aren't protected or taken care of or get exploited because they are passive. And this cultural dynamic, I think, is also a spiritual reality. I think it's a spiritual dynamic. It's a spiritual issue because it shows up in the very first man in humanity. In the story of Adam. And so we're going to take a look at some of these verses today. We find Adam's story in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and and in the creation account. And this is what we read about when Adam was created by God. Genesis 126 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You could say that at this point when man is created, man gets a commission from God. And the word in that commission, the operative word, is the word rule. Let them rule over all of the other created things. Man was in rulership over the land, over the birds, over the animals. You know, one of the things it says is that the man actually named the animals. You know, I can imagine that exchange going on where Adam is connecting with God and they're naming animals and this thing comes by, it's got a mane, it's got like some fur, it roars. And, you know, Adam's like, lion, let's call that a lion. You know, and maybe God was like, I kind of sounded like a bear to me, but hey, lion, you get the call, it's a lion. You know, I mean, we just see very clearly that Adam is given authority right from the very beginning, tremendous authority. Tremendous authority. It goes on to say he's to subdue the earth. That is not a passive thing. Subduing something means you are controlling, organizing, managing, putting into order, pulling things back, and pushing things forward. Adam had an aggressive call, an aggressive commission in his life to rule. And he was given that commission by God. He was given authority, but he was also given direction. Later in the the creation account, the second chapter of Genesis, this is what it says. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Adam got a job. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now here's what's interesting about the direction that Adam is given. The first three words of the command is you are free. You are free. God did not give Adam a map. When you think about a map as it relates to direction, a map is step-by-step, blow-by-blow, turn-by-turn. Here's how you get to where you're going. God chose not to give Adam a map. And in fact, he said, you are free. You are free in this aggressive pursuit to to just manage and govern over creation. He gave him one command, one restriction. And the restriction was there's one tree out of all these trees that you shouldn't eat from. You know, I think it's interesting because God didn't give Adam a map. He actually gave Adam a compass. He gave him a compass. He gave him some guidance, but he didn't go step by step, turn by turn, because he wanted him to operate in freedom aggressively. That was God's original intent for Adam. He didn't give him a map. He gave him a compass. You know, I was thinking about my first compass. And uh, I don't know about you, but my first compass came on a toy that I cannot believe to this day that my parents bought for me when I was about eight years old. Does anybody remember the Rambo Survivor Knife? Any guys remember that? Any guys remember that? Man, that this was heaven right here. Like this toy Oh my goodness, it wasn't a toy. It was awesome. And my mom and dad got this thing for me. And the way this worked, if you had one, I had the camouflage version. My handle was camouflage. And it was hollow on the inside. And so you would open it up, and it had all these kind of survival things. There were like fishing line in there, and there were hooks, and there were wet and dry matches. I mean, everything that a boy could need to survive. I mean, you know? And then it actually came with a, a piece of flint, so you could just sit around and sharpen that thing. I mean, it was a great toy. It was a great toy. Loved that toy. And the cool thing about it was on the tip, there was a compass. And that was my first compass, my first experience with understanding what is true north and magnetic north. And I would go when I had the opportunity to get out of the city and get into some woods. I would take my survivor knife and I would kind of just get lost in the woods. And you know, I didn't know how to get back. I didn't have a map, but I had the guidance of my compass. And I think it's interesting that that is how God set Adam up. He set him up for adventure. He set him up for an aggressive life. And and really, Adam's compass consisted of two things, the word of God He had a specific command from God. You are free, there's one restriction. He had the word of God as his compass, and he had the very presence of God. Adam interacted with God in this incredibly intimate way. And that's what he got. He had authority, he had a compass. But very early in the story, in the next chapter, we see that Adam abdicates his authority. You know, the third chapter of Genesis is described as the fall of man. And what it describes is how sin and brokenness and pain entered the world. And the story that the Bible tells is that Adam and Eve were tempted by a serpent. A serpent, Satan, the accuser. They were tempted, and they fell to that temptation. Now, when I, I heard this story growing up in my church, I, I heard it in Sunday school a lot. And Sunday school was kind of what happened before the big church gathering, kind of like Kids Club. You get with kids your age, and you talk about, you know, Bible stories. And I remember reading this Bible story and hearing this Bible story, and I remember just saying, man, Mankind would have been so great if Eve just didn't screw everything up. Like, man, what, what was she thinking? Like, it's crazy, you know, and it's, it's Eve's issue, and, and that's why sin entered the world. You know, it's interesting, though, because in rereading that story and taking it in, there's actually a very different picture going on when man actually takes that fall, when they eat the forbidden fruit. So let's read that, and let's, let's examine this a little bit. This is in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Adam was right there. He was right there. He was right there when they were being tempted. He was right there when his wife ate the fruit. And I want to submit to you that the reason that there's brokenness and pain in the world is not just because of what Eve did. It's primarily because of what Adam did not do. Adam's passivity is the reason that this world is broken. Adam's passivity is that. And all throughout the story of the Bible, the, they pin it on Adam. They don't pin it on Eve. They pin it on Adam's passivity. Because what we learn in the story of Adam is this. We learn that passive men give way to bondage. That's what passive men do. But aggressive men fight for freedom. Freedom. Aggressive men fight for freedom. Adam had an opportunity in the face of evil to not give way to bondage, to fight for freedom using his compass, the word of God, accessing the presence of God, and he chose not to. And his passivity had a cataclysmic effect on humankind. I think that's why Edmund Burke, one of the um, philosophers in the 17th century, said the only thing that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And I want to submit to you there's a lot of evil in this world primarily because good men do nothing. There's a lot of broken marriages because good men do nothing. There's a lot of broken kids because good men do nothing. There's a lot of situations in neighborhoods that are messed up because good men do nothing. Men, this is just the struggle that we have. This is the fight that we have. And I'm telling you, God calls us to an aggressive life. But the reality is because we're the great, 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 grandsons of Adam, we struggle with passivity in our lives. We struggle with it all the time. There's a philosopher of manhood who was talking to one of his mentees, and he said this to him. He said, the worst thing happened to you that can happen to any fighter, you got civilized. Does anybody know the philosopher who said that? Mickey Goldmill from Rocky. <laughs> Mickey Goldmill. Rock, the worst thing happened to you that can happen to any fighter. You got civilized. I love that movie. Man, that is so Philadelphia all the way. I love it. I love Rocky. I'm sorry. You know, And this is interesting, because if you remember the context of this comment, Rocky had had some success. Rocky started out very aggressive, very aggressive, and he had beaten Apollo Creed, and now he was the champion. And as the champion, he got soft, you know. He got more into the entertainment of things than really training and focusing on what got him to be the champion. And all of a sudden, Mr. T, Clubber Lang, comes and challenges him to a fight, and Rocky recognizes he needs some training. And he went to Mickey, and Mickey said, I'm not going to train you. I'm not going to train you because you got civilized. You got civilized, and men, I'm just gonna tell you, I have gotten civilized in my life about the wrong things. I've gotten civilized. I've gotten civilized about how I lead my family financially. You know, I've been content to say, well, I'll make the money and I'll just leave it to Maria to figure out how we manage it. And can I just tell you, that is not the way it's supposed to work in a family. And this is not a chauvinistic statement. Maria has just as much intelligence as I do to think through these things. But the reality is the way I believe spiritually things work is that it is my responsibility to take care of my family financially. And that doesn't mean just to make the money. That means to lead us to places of how we spend it, how we save it, and how we give it away. That's my call. That's my responsibility. But I get civilized about the wrong thing when I'm not leading my family in that way. I get civilized at work. One of the marks of the man that Brian talked about was that men hold a minority position. And, you know, there are some times when I'm in the conversation or I'm in a brainstorm or whatever it is, and because I'm afraid of how people are going to judge my idea because I struggle with being a people pleaser, I get to a point where I just shut down and I don't offer my perspective. And when I do that, I'm getting civilized about the wrong things because my diversity of opinion, perspective, experience is, is going to be a contribution to that team. But if I'm so concerned about what other people think about me, I hold back on that get civilized about the wrong things. Here's one for us guys, man, we get civilized about speaking the truth in love to our friends. You know, many of us have guys in our lives, we have relationships with men, and we know they are doing things that are absolutely wrong, unhealthy for them, unhealthy for the people in their lives. And you know what, sometimes I get civilized and I don't want to have that hard conversation with a guy friend. What is that about? What is that about? I'm called to be aggressive about those things. If I see him going down a path that I know leads to destruction or hurt, as a friend, if I'm really a friend, I'm gonna challenge that. But I get civilized about the wrong things. And men, I know that if you're like me, somewhere in your life you can see where you've gotten civilized about the wrong things. Martin Luther King put it well. He said, our lives begin to die the day we get silent about the things that matter most. Men, when we get silent about the things that matter most, we begin to die. A little piece of us begins to die. And actually, death is the ultimate conclusion of Adam's passivity. His story picks up in the New Testament portion of the Bible where a guy named Paul is kind of telling the bigger story of what's going on in history and with um, with Adam and with mankind and with Jesus. And this is what he says about Adam. The conclusion of the matter is this. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Adam's passivity led to death. When men are passive, good things die. That's just the natural progression. We see it in Adam's story. We see the brokenness in our world. We see the unnecessary death and suffering in our world because Adam was passive about the wrong things. So the question, men, is what do we do? How do we move from this inherited sin gene of passivity that Adam passed down to his great-great-great-great-grandsons? How do we move away from that? Well, the answer that God gives us is found in Jesus. The answer is found in Jesus. You know, there are places in the Bible where Jesus is actually called the second Adam. And I don't think that's by coincidence that God chose to enflesh himself as a man. I don't think that's by coincidence. You could say, well, that was just because when Jesus came, he wouldn't have been perceived or received if he was a woman. And yeah, I'll grant you that, but you know what? He could have waited and Jesus could have come in our time where there is equality, where there is an opportunity for women to be heard. But God chose to enflesh himself as a man, strategically, in history, all time, in the man Jesus. That is for a reason. I think it's because God wants to reclaim manhood as a part of what Jesus brings back with salvation and with freedom and with love. That's part of the deal. And so we're going to take a look at a couple scriptures. And what we're going to see is there are some tremendous contrasts between Adam and Jesus, specific things that Jesus walks through, I believe, to reclaim the aggression that Adam lost. And it begins actually in the very beginning of Jesus coming on the scene. There are four biographies of Jesus' life called the Gospels. And the earliest one, the oldest one, is the book of Mark. And in Mark, it's interesting because he lays a pattern that then other of the Gospels follow around how Jesus' story gets told. And there are some events that show up continually in the Gospels. One of them is this one, when Jesus gets baptized, which shows up in Mark chapter 1. In verse 9, it says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth, In Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is an incredible thing. In the midst of Jesus doing this normal thing, this Jewish experience of being baptized, there's this supernatural experience that literally rips open heaven. Heaven rips open, and God's spirit, the symbol of his physical presence, comes and lands on Jesus. And then Jesus gets these words from the Father. The words from the same Father, the same creator, that gave Adam the commission in Genesis. This is Jesus getting authority from the Father. This baptism, when God says, when the Creator Father says, this is my son, he was conferring all of his authority on Jesus. We know that because in that culture to be a son meant that you walked in the authority of your father. And so when a son showed up for a legal proceeding or if a son showed up for some business deal, it was as if the father himself was there. And so God, at the very beginning of the story of Jesus, comes and confers authority on him in the same way that Adam received authority. And he gives him a commission. He gives him a commission, and Jesus gets a compass, and actually he gets the same compass that Adam had. The presence, the Spirit of God rests on Jesus. He has that relational connection with God, and not only that, but he gets freedom within this compass. One of the things that's interesting is God says, you're my son, and you, I am well pleased. And that statement of pleasing the Father was really the compass for Jesus' life. It shows up a lot of times in his teaching. Jesus says, hey, my primary goal is to please the Father. That's what I do. But I have freedom to figure out what that looks like. But I'm connected to the Father, so I understand that. Jesus gets authority, and he gets a compass. And the next part of the story, and this is the same pattern that's followed in all the biographies where this baptism narrative shows up, the next thing that happens is we see Jesus facing evil. We see how Jesus comes face to face with that same serpent, that same tempter, who's trying to get him to get off his game, trying to get him to go against what God has created him to be. And this baptism narrative always follows from by, by this temptation, the temptation of Jesus in the desert. Mark puts it like this in the next verse. He says, At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. 40 days. 40 days of dealing with that same serpent. And In detailed accounts of this um, temptation, what we find out is that basically he was tempted three times. He was tempted in three ways. One was about giving up his identity and questioning his identity. The second was about him giving up his power and using it in ways that God hadn't created him to use it. And then the third was him giving up his mission and actually forsaking the very purpose that he had came to the world for. He gets tempted three times, and every time Jesus responds with the phrase, it is written. And then he goes on to use the words of God in the face of evil, aggressively facing evil. Jesus passed the test that Adam failed. He passed the test because he used the compass and he knew his authority because of who he was in God. He passed the test that Adam failed because he used his authority and his compass and and he was not passive in the face of evil. And in fact, Jesus wasn't just tested for 40 days, but he went on to be aggressive in the face of evil for a three-year public ministry. And in the final act of aggressive love, he stretched his arms and he died on a cross. And that was an aggressive act. That was an aggressive act against temptation because this is what Jesus models for all of us. This is what we know. Passive men are self-serving, but aggressive men love sacrificially. Aggressive men love sacrificially. And when Jesus stretched out his arms and died, he did so that you and so that I could have our freedom returned. This is how Jesus fought for freedom. He did it aggressively. You know, we talk about the good news or the gospel. You might hear that word, and, and it's used to describe those biographies of Jesus' life, but it's also used to describe kind of the major thrust of Jesus' message. And I want to tell you, the gospel is not just about getting a ticket to heaven someday. Jesus didn't just come so that you and I can get this, you know, this insurance policy for heaven. But Jesus came to restore He came to do what Adam didn't. He came to subdue the earth again, to make things right, to organize and arrange us back toward God. This is what Jesus did, and he did it by loving sacrificially. That was his aggressive act. That was his aggressive act of love. And that's why in that story, that big story that's happening in the book of Romans where where Paul is kind of recounting human history and what that means for our faith and relationship with God, just a few verses after he talks about how death entered the world through Adam's passivity, look at what he says about Jesus. In Romans five fifteen he says, But the gift is not like the trespass. Jesus is not like Adam. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? See, when good men, when good men are aggressive, when good men are aggressive, freedom comes. Jesus was aggressive, and he brought freedom. He was aggressive, and he brought freedom. And I want to let you know, men, Jesus didn't just come to model that, But he actually came to commission you and I to do the same thing. Look at what he says in John 15, 13. This is when he's commissioning the men he's invested his time and his life into. John 15, 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Right here in this verse, Jesus gives you authority, men. He gives you authority. You want to know what greatness looks like? Greatness looks like following in my authority, Jesus says, and laying down your life for others in love. That's the authority you have. And he gives us a compass. He says, you're my friends. You're relationally connected with me, and you are my friends if you do what I command, if you follow my words. We get the same authority, and we get the same compass. It gets restored in Jesus. And men, it is for us to live aggressively. It is for us to live aggressively. And men, I want to call out. I'm going to call you out. I'm going to pick a fight with you now because this is the man you were created to be. You weren't created to be a passive man. You're created to be an aggressive man laying down your life for other people. And this is what it looks like. If you have a family, you aggressively lead in your family. Be aggressive in your family about leading them spiritually, about leading them financially. It is your call, and you have authority and a compass in Jesus to lead. Be aggressive, men. Be aggressive about that. You know, it might be easier for you if you have kids, if the principal calls or if there's a discipline issue with your kids, it might be easier to defer to mom and let mom deal with that. Men, I'm calling you out, and I'm saying I want you to be aggressive about disciplining your kids. You give them the example. You be their role model. You take the phone call. You take the hit. You change your work schedule to sit with the principal. Be aggressive about raising your children, men. Be aggressive. This is what we're called to. Another one for fathers, if you are letting pop culture define for your boy what it means to be a man, or for your girl what it means to be a woman, you're being passive. Don't be passive about that, man. Be aggressive, and you shape your son's vision of manhood. You shape it for him. You shape your daughter's vision of womanhood. You shape it for her. Don't let culture do that for your kids. Be aggressive. Be aggressive. You might be in here and you're single. If you're single, one of the things I remember, I've been there. One of the things I remember is it was easy for me to be passive when it came to sexual boundaries in the relationship. You know, I believed and I believed when I was dating what the Bible says about sex should be reserved for marriage. But, you know, what? it was easier for me to say, well, listen, we're in the moment and I'm going to trust that if she doesn't want to go any further, she'll, she'll say that to me. And, man, I just want you to know that is not her job. It's your job. If you are single in here and you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you're in a relationship and there's physical boundaries you're violating, you be aggressive. You change the boundaries. You lead that relationship to a new place. That is your call, not hers. Be aggressive about that. Be aggressive about that. Maybe you work in an environment where it's just easy. It's easy to do some things that are just, you know, not very, not, not really illegal, but they're just not necessarily ethical. And it's just the way that business is done. And it would be taking a minority position to change the way you do business in that environment. Well, men, I want you to know you have authority and you have a compass in Jesus. Change it. Change it. Be aggressive. Set a different standard. Set a different standard in that context. This is what we're called to, men. This is the kind of aggressive life that we're called to. Laying down our lives for love. Fighting for the freedom of other people. This is the man that you were created to be. I want to read something to you guys. This is something that Maria wrote for me. And um, we went to a marriage retreat a couple weeks ago. And one of the things that we did in the retreat is we actually wrote these letters to each other, a series of letters. You write them in 10 minutes, and then you kind of exchange papers and read them and then talk about them. And the letters always start with a specific statement or question that you're answering. And one of the questions was, when I think about all the things I love about my spouse, I feel. And um, I want to read this to you guys because... Quite frankly, this, is, this, this really hit me hard when I read it. Um, this is from Maria to me, and she said, Chuck, when I think about all the things I love about you, I feel secure. Chuck, I love your strength and consistency. You are truly my solid rock and the foundation of our marriage. You support us not only financially, but physically, mentally, and spiritually. I look to you for direction and guidance, and that says a lot coming from a very independent person. It's like jumping into the pool for the first time. Your dad's arms are open wide, encouraging you to jump, lovingly telling you, I have you. Your heart is beating so fast with all the potential what-ifs, but in the end, you know that you're loved and that you will get caught. You know with every fiber of your being, and so you close your eyes and leap into the water. You go under, unsure, and feel the grasp of two strong hands under your arms and are then lifted out of the water. With great elation, you breathe in and know you are safe as both of you look into each other's eyes, giggling in delight. My life, my marriage, my love, and my son are all secure in you. I, um, two things. First of all, it's Valentine's Day. I don't need anything else for Valentine's Day. I'm just going to say that right now. I'm good. Um, The other reason I read this is not because I am actually this man. I mean, come on, I'm not this every day. But man, I want you to know, I'm aggressively becoming this man. I'm aggressively going to be this husband for her. And I'm going to be this father for my son. No matter what it takes, no matter my setbacks, I'm going to be aggressive about becoming this man. It's possible. It's possible, and I'm running hard after it. And, man, I wanna call you and I wanna challenge you to run hard after being an aggressive man. Run hard about being aggressive about the right things in your life and laying down your life in love and sacrificing for the freedom of other people around you. You don't have to be married, you could be single. This could be when you're a teenager, how you're leading your peer group. It does not matter, but this is the man you are called to be. And I wanna invite you to receive that from Jesus. This is what Jesus came for. Jesus came to reclaim male aggression, and he defines it very differently. It's fighting for the freedom of other people, and it is laying down your life sacrificially. The band's going to come out, and they're going to sing a song. And one of the verses in this song says, Let the priests of the Lord rise among us. And it's actually a a request. We're asking God to do this for us. And I just want to talk about that word priest a little bit, because I think it has meaning in what we're talking about today as men. You know, in the Jewish religious structure back before, um, back in the temple days, and actually even today, um, the way it works is there would be a chief priest who was kind of the over, overall spiritual leader of the entire nation of Israel. And actually one of the other names that Jesus gets in the Bible is that he is called our high priest, our chief priest. And so he is ultimately our spiritual leader. And we come up under his authority as it relates to our relationship with him and with the Father. That's, that's what Jesus, the role, one of the roles that Jesus plays. But the way it worked in Judaism was you would have other priests that served under the chief priest. And I want you to know that when this song says, Let the priest of the Lord rise among us, it's actually a call for men. And it's not just men. It, this is for women, too, when you come to follow Jesus. But one of the things you get, one of the things that's conferred on you as a man who follows Jesus is you become a priest. You are a priest. You, are op- you have the opportunity, you have the authority and the direction to spiritually love and serve other people. And so when this song says that, I want you to know, men, this is what God intends for you. This is God's word toward you. And so we're gonna, I want you to listen to this song. And as you do, I just want these words to sink in. God, I'm actually asking that in these next few moments, you would just protect us from every distraction. From everything, God, that would take us off the dime of this moment where men get to understand and embrace who you've created them to be. As we listen to this song, God, I pray that you would sink this deep into our hearts. Amen.